0: Well, it is my privilege to be able to bring the Word of God before us today, and as we begin our study of the Word of God, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we ask as we open your Word this morning that you would please open our hearts, that you would show us the wonderful things that are in your Word. Would you please humble our hearts to receive the instruction that you have for us. And may we ultimately be satisfied with you because we have seen you in your word. We ask this in the name of Christ, amen. Well, it is unfortunate that church members can sometimes be known for what they fight about. Uh, It was through an informal survey on Twitter that one church leader received a multitude of stories of actual church disagreements, and these are just a sampling of their responses. Uh, One was an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. (laughs) Again, who called that meeting and who actually came, I don't know, but second is a... uh, A big church argument over the discovery that the church budget was off by a dime, and someone finally gave a dime to settle the argument. (laughs) A dispute in the church because the Lord's Supper had cran grape juice instead of just grape juice. An argument on whether the church should allow deviled eggs at the church meal. I mean, really, deviled eggs at the church potluck? I mean, come on. In one church there were some members that left because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from them, and it resulted in a major fight and a split. Again, unfortunately. Another argument in a church over who had access to the copy machine. In one church, they moved to a stronger blend of copy coffee, and members left the church over this. I mean, coffee's a big deal. <laughs> but that big? And finally, a 45-minute argument at a women's group meeting over whether dinner rolls for an upcoming church supper ought to be sliced horizontally or vertically. Now, while there is certain humor in these, it's also sad that the church can get sidetracked on such trivial matters as this. And I'm sure you have your own examples of Experiences you've had or experiences that you, of friends and family of how churches can easily descend into disunity. Preferences and personal concerns become the hills that people die on. And if we're not careful, we too can follow a similar path. We could allow our hurt feelings to get in the way of what God wants to do in us and through us. In our passage this morning, Paul helps pave a way that is away from disunity and into greater unity. He shows that the church, what the church should prioritize over division, and that is unity. It should prioritize love over hate, others over ourselves. And so if you're not there already, I invite you to turn in your personal copy of God's Word to Philippians chapter 2, the book of Philippians chapter 2. The book of Philippians was written while Paul was in prison in Rome awaiting trial before Caesar. He had been to Philippi in his second missionary journey and planted a church there that included the households of the jailer who was converted on that amazing night in which Paul and Silas were set free, as well as the household of Lydia that they had met when they first entered the city. These being the founding members, the church continued to grow from there. This founding of the church is recounted for us in Acts chapter 16. It's now several years later. Epaphroditus, a representative of the Philippian church, was sent to Rome to minister to Paul in his imprisonment. And Paul hears about what's going on in the Philippian church and then sends this letter, the letter of Philippians, back with Epaphroditus to the church. He begins the book by giving thanks for the church by praying for the church, and then he gives a personal update on his own situation. That's all found in chapter 1. And then in chapter 1, verse 27, he begins to instruct the believers. He begins a period of exhortation in the book where he gives some commands on what he wants the Philippian church to do. And it's in chapter 1, running through chapter 2, verse 18, that this section is found the essence of the instruction found in this section is found in chapter 1 verse 27 so if you can let your eyes glance up there in verse 27 of chapter 1 Paul says only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. His primary concern that's driving through chapter 1 verse 27 through chapter 2 verse 18 is that the Philippian believers would live lives that are worthy of the gospel. The first way that he describes a gospel-worthy life is that it would stand firm together in the face of opposition. And we see that in verses 27 through 30 of chapter 1. He calls them to stand together together united against the opposition that they face. But then it's in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that Paul then describes a second feature of a gospel-worthy life, namely that it lives for the good of others. So let's read those verses now. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. From this passage this morning, we're going to see four actions that we must take in order for our lives to be marked by humble service and our church to be marked by loving unity. So let's look at the first action that we must take, and that is found in verse one, and it's that we must count our blessings. We must count our blessings. I first want to draw your attention to the flow and structure of these few verses so that we can understand what Paul is doing here. Verse 2 is the primary instruction in this paragraph, and that is that Paul says that he would be overjoyed to hear that the Philippians are walking together in unity. And then in verses 3 and 4, he gives the outworking of that unity. How is it that they can achieve this unity? Well, it's by doing the actions that he calls for in verses 3 and 4. So then how does verse 1 fit in? Verse 1 is the basis for the unity that he calls for in verse 2. So he gives the basis, and then based upon that, he gives the command, and then in verses 3 and 4, he gives how it is accomplished, So let's look at verse 1, the basis for this unity. Notice that he begins chapter 2 here with a so, or therefore. This is an indication that Paul is continuing his flow of argument from chapter 1, verse 27. He's talking about a gospel-worthy life, and now he's continuing that here in chapter 2. As you can see, verse 1 is a list of if-statements. Statements that begin with the word if. Now, today, when we use the word if, it's usually because we are not quite certain of the circumstances. For example, if we say, if it rains today, then we will go inside. The fact of the rain has not yet been fully determined yet. It's still up in the air. We're not quite sure if it's going to happen. But sometimes in the Bible, the authors use if-then statements when they are certain of the if part of the statement. The reason they put it in the if is not to communicate uncertainty, but it invites dialogue with the reader or the listener. As someone listening, they hear the if this, and they then have to ask themselves if that is true of them. And they can respond internally to the statement that Paul is making. I want to show you an example of this before we look in chapter 2, verse 1. Go one book to the right to Colossians. Colossians chapter 3 is a prime example of this. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above. Now, Paul is not in doubt about whether the believers have actually been raised with Christ. This is a settled reality for all who are actually in Christ, is that they have died with Christ and they have been raised with him. This is the great truth that he has taught throughout his letters. So his if here is not communicating doubt about this reality, but it causes the reader to hear it and say, Yes, I have been raised with Christ. As readers and listeners, we respond to that if by confirming it in our own minds. It prompts a moment of self-reflection as we have to evaluate ourselves. And so as we flip back to Philippians chapter 2, and we see these if statements, these cause a moment of self-reflection and evaluation for us as well. These are objectively true for all believers in Christ, but Paul wants each person, each believer, to make a subjective evaluation in their own lives. And that includes us. So let's look at each one of these phrases in turn. He begins, so if there is any encouragement in Christ. Encouragement here refers to to strengthening and emboldening of one's faith. Paul says that the sphere or environment that this this encouragement takes place is in Christ. And when Paul uses the, the short little phrase, in Christ, it's his shorthand way to talk about the huge reality that believers are united to Jesus. This great theological reality of our union with Christ. That Jesus was not just some guy 2,000 years ago who did something and we happened to benefit from it. But that you and I as believers in Christ, we are united, inseparably joined to our Savior. And when He died, we died. When He was raised, we were raised. We receive all the benefits of the gospel because of our union with Jesus and that we cannot be separated from Him. And so because we are joined with Christ... We receive encouragement and strengthening in our faith and our daily walk. I encourage you to check out Pastor David's sermon that he preached this last summer on July 1st on union with Christ. Went into that in-depth and showed the great riches of what the believers have in Jesus. It's as we recognize that we are in Christ that we are strengthened and we are encouraged. And so as Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, we go, yes, there is encouragement in Christ. Yes, I am strengthened because of Jesus. But not only that, he says, if there's any comfort from love, Paul next draws attention to the comfort believers receive from love. Now, what love is he referring to? I think that 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14 provides a possible parallel for us, for this verse. So let's turn there for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. This is how the Apostle Paul ends the book of 2 Corinthians. And there's some wording that is similar to what we see here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Paul ends the book of 2 Corinthians by saying, The grace of Of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, what we see here is a pattern, an order of Christ, then love, then the Spirit or fellowship in the Spirit. That same order is then seen in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, where he talks about Christ, this time encouragement in Christ instead of grace in Christ. Then he talks about love. And then he talks about participation or fellowship in the Spirit. And so, even though the wording is not identical, I believe they're close enough to warrant a comparison in which we can see that, I believe, the comfort from the, the love that Paul's talking about in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, is the comfort from knowing that we are loved by God. We are loved by the Father. He speaks about Christ in the first statement. He speaks about the Spirit in the third statement. The comfort that we receive is from the love of the Father. Do we not receive comfort knowing that we are loved by our Heavenly Father? That even when all other loves fade away, even when we might feel abandoned, that we are loved by the Sovereign One. And that love is unfailing and unconditional. And it comforts our souls. And so Paul asks if there's any comfort from love and the believer says yes there is comfort from the love of God thirdly says any participation or any fellowship in the spirit this refers to the fellowship the partnership that we have with God and other Christians through the Holy Spirit the Spirit is the source of our fellowship we don't have fellowship with God or with one another without the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives And so Paul asks if there is any fellowship in the Spirit, and the believer says, yes, there is fellowship that we receive from the Spirit. This is one of the blessings that we receive as part of salvation. We don't just get freed from punishment of hell, but we get brought into close fellowship with God and with his people. It's a relationship that is unmatched and unparalleled. This is what John writes about in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, where he says, that, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Why? So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. See, John understood that as the gospel is proclaimed and people believe, there's then fellowship on a horizontal level and fellowship on a vertical level. And it's because of the fellowship that we share on the vertical level that the horizontal, the horizontal fellowship is even made possible. So we hear, is there any participation, fellowship from the Spirit? Yes, there is. And finally, he adds, and any affection and sympathy. Paul then ends this list with a reference to affection and compassion or sympathy. The word affection refers to the place of emotion, It's, uh, in our terminology, we would say the heart. It's, It's from the heart that our affection flows from. And so in this context, it's speaking about the deepest concern, the deepest love and affection that can be had. The word translated compassion or sympathy speaks of tender mercy that we have received in the gospel. And so again, what Paul is doing here is he's laying the foundation or the basis for his call to unity in the next verse. He's calling the believer to remember and to count his blessings. Friends, you need to count your blessings this morning of all that you've received in Christ because of the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the encouragement, the comfort, the love that you have. We recognize that we are so rich. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He wants us to think and consider all that we have received as a result of the grace of God through Christ. We must think on the gospel, and in doing this, in seeing God's grace, then we can turn and actually obey the command to be unified. And let's remember that these these blessings are not deserved by us. We did not earn these. There's no amount of spiritual hoops we jump through in order for God to then give these to us. They've all been a result of his grace. Now, if you're here this morning and you do not know these blessings, if deep in your soul you know that you are lost, that you are empty, that you do not have the strength and the comfort that comes from the love of God, then I call you, on the authority of the word of God, to turn to Jesus, who says his yoke is easy, easy and his burden is light. He gives rest for the weary soul. And as we repent of our sins and we place our faith in him, then we receive the embrace of the Father. We receive the strengthening of the Son and receive the deep fellowship that comes through the Spirit. And the promises. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So, we need to first count our blessings this morning if we are going to be humble in heart and unified as a church. The second action that we must take, that Paul gives us in this passage, is that we must pursue unity. And we see this in verse 2. We must pursue unity. He says, If if these things are true of you, verse 1, then verse 2 complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Now, Paul's appeal to unity here is couched in the language of joy. In other words, he doesn't just give the command, be unified or be of one mind, although he could do that. Instead, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. And in doing this, Paul is putting a relational force behind the appeal. Can you see that? He's pulling in the relationship that the Philippians have with Paul. And it's not just a command coming from a superior, but recognizing that the the response to there, the response to this command directly affects the Apostle Paul. So not only would you be obeying the Word of God, but you would also be encouraging me and filling my cup of joy up to the brim. And the Philippians would read that and go, oh, we don't want to subtract any joy from Paul. We want to give him all the joy that we can. We sent to Epaphroditus to encourage him. We, we We want to see Paul as joyful as he can be in the midst of his circumstances. And so this would have helped them to move in the direction of obedience. It is remarkable when we consider Paul's circumstances, right? That as he sits in a Roman prison, that the concern that sits on his heart that that would fill his joy up to the brim is not release from prison, is not the change of his own circumstances, but it is to see the Philippian church unified and walking together arm in arm. In other words, his circumstances could continue to get worse, but his joy would continue to go up if the Philippians obeyed this command. I think most of us in Paul's circumstances would be thinking about our own condition and our own future. But Paul is really exemplifying what he calls for in this passage, which is a concern for others over a concern for himself. Now the thing that Paul says would complete his joy is expressed in four phrases. You see it. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord or united in spirit and being of one mind or intent on one purpose. You get to the end of that and you go, all right, Paul, we get it. Uh, He could have said it once. But it's through this force of repeating it over and over again in different ways that he gets the point across. Now we can pull back and say, why did Paul need to give such an instruction to the Philippian church? Why is he compounding this fourfold call to unity? Well, there's some things that we can surmise about the church in Philippi. One is that we do know that there were some disagreements going on. In fact, flip to the right to chapter 4, and we, we hear of one disagreement that was going on in the church. He says, I entreat Yodia, and I tr- entreat... Syndicate to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So here are two ladies who are in clear disagreement. Epaphroditus has brought word about this disagreement back to Paul in Rome, and so Paul addresses it here at the end of the book. With that said, though, I don't think that it's right to assume that the Philippian church was this chaotic uh, uh, scene of disagreement, that in other words, it was just known for rampant conflict, and so Paul had to stamp it out. There's clearly not an alarm in his words in chapter 2, verse 2, but there is an emphasis. So he's not bursting into the room figuratively, blowing the whistle and saying, all of you sit down and stop fighting. He's heard of some disagreements and he wants to make sure that those get laid aside and that they join together in unity. But we need to ask what is this unity composed of? What is the one mind? Does a local church need to have the same political opinions? Do they all need to be best friends with one another? Do they all need only to agree on some basic doctrine and then they can go off and do whatever? No, the unity of the church has to be grounded upon the gospel of Jesus Christ and the salvation that results from believing the gospel. The work of Christ is the place that we find our greatest alignment. If you do not believe the gospel that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and died on the cross for your sins, then unity with the people of God does not exist. In the church... We are united spiritually first before we even develop a relationship with one another. But the relationship is then to follow. We develop unity, closeness together because of the theological reality of what has taken place that Paul reminded us of in verse 1. So, how do we pursue this unity? How do we at FBC strive to live together, aligned around the gospel? I believe that it first has to begin in our homes. We will not be a unified church if the principles of this passage are not first lived out among our families. So to those of you who are married, the gospel is what your marriage is grounded upon. This is what unity with your spouse is grounded in. As we drive deeper in our understanding and appreciation for what Christ did for us in the gospel, we go deeper in our unity together. Maybe you've heard of the triangle analogy, right? Where you and your spouse are down on the, the bottom corners of the triangle and Christ is up at the top. And as we each draw closer to Christ, we actually draw closer to one another as well. And that is an illustration of as we pursue Christ and seek to go deeper into the gospel, that not only do we get closer to Christ, but we get closer to one another. This gospel increases our unity and intimacy. We can be of one mind with our spouse. We can be of the same love, intent on one purpose, united in spirit. Because We, as we look at the love of Christ, the unconditional love that we have been shown, we then get a portrait of the kind of love that we should be giving to our spouse. We see that Christ laid down his life for his bride, so we lay down our lives for our spouse. You will bring greater unity and peace in your marriage if you reflect on the love and grace of Christ. Because your love will then cover and overlook a multitude of sins, as Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 8. Covers a multitude of sins. And of course, as two sinners seek to live with one another, conflict is inevitable. But you will be able to work through that conflict with grace and peace, remembering the forgiveness that God has given you in Christ. That's, the, the basis of Paul's exhortation in Philippians 4, verse 32, be kind, tender hearted to one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. As you reflect and meditate upon the forgiveness given you in Christ, you will be able to forgive those in your own family. This is... The gospel is also the grounding for Christian dating in for marriage. So, young people, as you consider who you will love and give your heart to, the gospel must be front and center. If you are indeed a follower of Christ, then Christ should shape your affections. You should be drawn to those who look like Christ. If that guy or girl has not repented of their sins and believed in Christ, then they might be a nice person, but they are not being conformed into the image of the one that you love the most. How can you be drawn to one that does not look like Christ? Your core identity is found in Christ. Therefore, that should be the core identity of the person that you're pursuing, and ultimately, as it applies to this passage, we're talking about unity, and you will not be of one heart and one mind and one love with this person. You cannot experience the unity that Paul describes here. You can share a lot of things and a, and a lot of experiences, but if this person does not love Christ, you cannot share the deepest part of you. Parents, as we look to developing our families we must develop the identity of our families around the gospel as well as we develop our family identity around the gospel and seek to drive us and our children back to the cross it will form the basis for our relationship with them that we are seeking to worship Jesus together and walk in alignment with the gospel and so if we are pursuing the gospel unity in our own homes then as we step into this community of believers, then there will be unity here as well as we seek to do the same thing. We seek to be aligned on the gospel. In the church, our unity, as we have said, is grounded in the gospel, but it's also directed towards the commission of Christ. Remember his great commission, that we are to... Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That is what the church is to be about. And so we are united in our identity in Christ, and we are united in our mission of what we're to be about. We are working together, side by side, for the faith of the gospel, as Paul said in chapter 1, verse 27. We're not just a community of believers, of people who experience a unity of position in Christ, which is true, but we are a community who experiences a unity of practice. We are all engaged in the task of discipling each other and the nations to greater faith in Christ. And so, if we are to obey Paul's appeal here, if we are going to be of the same mind, same love, of one accord, of one mind, then we must fundamentally care about the same things. And that means that we care about the glory of Christ in our lives and the lives of the people around us. The people that are sitting next to us in the pew, the people that are next to us in small group, the the people that live around us that we work next to. We must care about the glory of Christ in their lives if we're going to be unified together in the commission of Christ. And as those statements that I began the message with about what believers can fight about show the Christians often allow a myriad of other things to get in the way of our primary task we allow our preferences and concerns to take center stage And so we need to remember that even though we are different people from different backgrounds, as Art mentioned earlier, we have lots of different passions and concerns upon our heart. We minister in different areas and in different ways. There's great diversity within the body of Christ, and it's beautiful. But it's beautiful because we are also all aligned and unified together. It's like music. You can have lots of different harmonies within a piece of music. If you've seen a score for an orchestra, all these different instruments are playing so many different notes, and yet it all works together for a beautiful piece of, of music in the same way as in the church. We all are ministering different ways, different gifts, different passions and abilities, but we are all unified in our song together of declaring Christ to the world. Friends, we need to work for unity here at Foothill. We need to pray for unity, that we would all be of one mind and that Christ would be glorified through that. So that brings us to the third action that we must take for the church to be unified. The first is to count our blessings. The second was to pursue unity. Thirdly, to humble our hearts. We must humble our hearts, verse three. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. As I said earlier, Paul turns his attention here in verses 3 and 4 to outlining two ways that we pursue this unity. The first involves a change of heart. The second involves a change of action. But here in verse 3, as he talks about the change of heart, he says to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. These are two attitudes that should not characterize the Christian. The first is selfish ambition or simply selfishness. This word was used back in chapter 1, verse 16, where he says that there are preachers who are going around and they're preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. They were proclaiming the true gospel, but doing it out of motives to spite Paul. To, out of competition with Paul. They were simply thinking about themselves and their own status and their own selves. And so this word simply means is a concern for oneself that drowns out other concerns. He says that kind of selfishness should not be found in the church. Secondly, empty conceit, or as the KJV translates it, vain glory, which is a, uh, direct translation from the two words that, the, that make the compound word in the Greek. Vainglory, empty glory. A conceit, a, a seeking for attention and glory for ourselves that ultimately winds up being empty. This is what the selfish person w- seeks for. They're selfish and they want vainglory, they want empty conceit. But it is vain. It's like the treasure chest at the end of a laborious quest that's discovered to be empty. It doesn't satisfy. It fails us in the end. And yet, this is what mankind, in his sin, in his lost state, is striving for day after day after day, is it not? People get up trying to make a name for themselves, trying to get attention, trying to get likes, trying to get people to look at them and yet it's empty it's vain the more we strive for it is like grasping after the wind we get our hand on it and then we turn and we look and it's it's empty and Paul explicitly says that we must not act towards one another out of a motivation for self-glory These attitudes must not be named among us. And yet, like I said, these are the qualities that define the world. The world is defined by self-promotion and self-glory and self-worship. And yet, in the process of gaining a higher status, of, of climbing to the top, it steamrolls people in the process. It steamrolls those who are closest to us, that we love the most, all because we're seeking to get the glory for ourselves. The church, though, is to be defined by a different set of values. We're to be defined by humility, Paul says. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Humility, it's a lowly state of mind. It's where we're not, see- we're not seeking to uplift ourselves, but rather to put ourselves last. C.S. Lewis has defined it this way. Perhaps you've heard this definition. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's having your mind not placed upon yourself and your own concerns, but it's placing your mind and the attention and the, the minutes of your time onto the needs of others. It says, if we could get a, read, you know how you get a readout of your cell phone bill and where every minute of your calls have gone to, it's as if we get a readout of every minute of our thinking and see uh, where our time has been spent. And Paul is saying that the vast majority of our time should have the minutes of our mind spent thinking on others rather than thinking upon ourselves and our needs, And Paul says that when we put on humility, then we will see others as more important and more excellent and more significant than ourselves. This is a choice that we choose to regard or count others as having more value than us. And so, for the sake of unity and love, we choose to regard that person in our small group as more important than ourselves. We choose to count our spouse as more important than ourselves. We choose to value our children above ourselves. And of course, this is hard, is it not? If we're honest, we know all too well the attitudes of selfishness and conceit that rise up in our hearts. And friends, this is the great battle because mankind is inherently proud. Pride is the original sin of mankind. In pride, Adam and Eve thought that they knew better than God. And so they took that fruit and ate of it. And in ourselves, pride is the root of all our sin as well. We love ourselves and we want what we want when we want it. And we get angry if we don't get it. So how do we cultivate humility? Let me suggest two ways. First, we cultivate humility by We must seek to have an accurate assessment of yourself before a holy God. We must seek to have an accurate assessment of ourselves before a holy God. We grow in our pride because we fail to acknowledge our sin that's within our own hearts. When we look to Christ and compare ourselves with Him, we see how far we have to go in holiness. And this should humble us greatly. How can we be pride, proud when we are looking at a holy God? We see in the Apostle Paul a growing sense of his own unworthiness and sinfulness. We don't have time to turn to these this morning, but you can write these down. 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul says that he is the least of the apostles, in other words, in, in the the team roster of the apostles, he comes in last. 1 Corinthians 15, 9. In Ephesians 3, verse 8, he calls himself the very least of all the saints. And then in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, he calls himself the chief of sinners. And we see even in the apostle Paul in his writings, a greater profound sense of his own unworthiness and the own sin that resides within his heart. Friends, as we think about who we are before God, we cannot pat ourselves on the back for anything. The only thing that you and I bring to the table is need, is sin. We have a need for cleansing. That's all that we can pull out of our pockets and empty on the table and say, see God, this is what I got. All it is 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 filthy sin. That's what our righteousness is. Any good that we think that we've done The gospel reminds us that we can take no pride in ourselves. And when we see that, we can say with Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah 6, verse 5. Now this kind of self-assessment and the sin that it resides in our heart is not meant to send us into depression or despair, although it could without the gospel. This should help us to walk in humility, reminding us that, we, uh, that all we bring to the table is need and that Jesus has done the rest. Friends, Jesus has paid it all. He has made it possible for you to stand before God blameless and faultless. And so this should give us great joy. We see our sin, we're humbled. And yet we realize in spite of all that sin, Christ has given us his righteousness and we can stand in him blameless. And we have great joy as we cling to Christ knowing that it's only because we're united to our Savior that we have hope. One commentator put it this way. He said, where the conviction of sin is absent, which bows us into the dust before God, spiritual lowly-mindedness in our attitude toward the brothers is impossible. But where this conviction exists, the humility naturally becomes the result. As we are convicted of our sin, we will then be more humble to treat others with Kindness and humility as well. The second way we can grow in humility is to look for evidence of grace in others. Look for the evidence of grace in others. Now, it is, is it not true that we more often see the failures and faults in others than we see the evidences of grace? And think about the people in your own household, right? It's very easy to pull out the long list of ways that they are failing you or failing others because we see them On a daily basis, we see them in all circumstances. And yet, if we're going to walk in humility, cataloging their sins is not the path to walking in humility with them or to consider them more significant than yourself. We must open our eyes to see how is God working in them. And friends, it may be only a glimmer, but we must look for those glimmers. We must look for those evidences of grace. And if you do not see any at this time, to be praying that God would be working in them, to be producing grace, to be producing Christ likeness. What evidence of grace do you see in your spouse's life this week, in your kids' lives? Do you see the character of Christ in the life of that person in the small group they have a hard time getting, uh, getting to know? And when we do this, we'll be drawn to love this other person as a fellow child of God. Because what Paul says in in Philippians 1, verse 6, where he says, uh, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus, that is true of your spouse and of your child and of that person in the church. God is at work in them, and God loves them, and we should too. C.S. Lewis, quoting him again, he, in a letter he wrote to a woman who was complaining about a conflict that she was having with someone, he said this, he said, May God's grace give you the necessary humility. Try not to think, much less speak, of their sins. One's own are a much more profitable thing. And if, on consideration, one can find no faults on one's own side, then cry for Mercy for this must be a most dangerous delusion. And in that, we see the real danger that if we are so focused on the other people's faults and sins and we do not see any in our own, we are set up for unity-destroying pride. And friends, let us examine our own hearts to root out this pride so that we might walk in humility and consider (laughs) others as more important than ourselves. Finally, the fourth And final action we must take this morning is to serve with love. This is just the outflow of what he's already been talking about. That we let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We must not only think differently about the other people, but we must go into action and serve those other people and put their needs and interests above our own. This is foundational to Christian community. If the church is filled with people who are looking out for their own interests, then we destroy community. We destroy any sort of unity that we have, and we're just a bunch of in- individuals seeking to get a name for ourselves. But if we're to care for one another, if we're to love, if we're to stand arm in arm in the cause of the gospel, then we must be looking out for the interests of others. I love how Paul says it in Romans chapter 12 verse 10. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The church is to be this community of people scrambling over one another, trying to outdo one another in showing honor to one another. I mean, that just sounds like a wonderful place to be, right? Where everyone is looking to honor each other and compliment and to, and to serve. Our goal is simply not to, to not be fighting, although that's a good goal. It's a starting goal, okay? No fights is good. But, I think, but, but it's also to be blessing and serving and doing good. Some of you may think, oh, I'm doing this because I'm not, I'm not in, in any fight with anyone. There's no, there's no discord between me and another brother or sister. But I ask you, are you seeking to do others good? Are you putting their interests Before yourself. It's like an an, an accounting, right? We're not just trying to get to zero. We're trying to go positive here. And if you are not fighting, you're at zero. You don't have any, there's no negative outstanding balance. But we want to go above and beyond. We want to bless. We want to shower upon other people the love that we have been shown. We can grow in our serving of others by praying for others first and foremost. How much are you putting the concerns of the other people in this church on your heart? And as you pray, as you drive to and from places, as you're thinking about things, how much do the concerns of people of this church sit upon your heart? You're not going to be able to put their interests above your own if their interests aren't on your heart. We can try to anticipate or or keep our antenna up to be alerted for when needs come. Maybe it's a small group member talking about a difficulty that they're going through and you're thinking, you know what, they could probably benefit from a meal this week. Or maybe I can watch their kids and help them get out and and have some time together. Or whatever it is. Be listening for those ways that we we can fill needs. And we can seek to surprise. Maybe there isn't a crisis going on in their life. Maybe we just... For the sheer love of it, want to bless them and surprise them. And friends, again, this should begin in our own homes as we seek to serve and to bless and surprise because we love in our own homes, in our own families, and then we can do that with those in the church. And as the church does this, we will be a shining light to a watching world. As we conclude this morning, I want to just have you notice really a fifth action that we should take to cultivate this humility and unity and it's in the f- verses 5 through 11 that we don't obviously have time to get into this morning but it's key to Paul's argument here and it's that is if we're going to grow in humility if we're going to serve one another if we're going to be unified then we must look to Christ we must look to Christ we must have our gaze fixed upon the savior and see that he humbled himself, that he sacrificed himself on our behalf. He is the prime example of humility, service, and sacrifice. And so for the sake of Christ and his glory, let us count our blessings, let us pursue unity, let us humble our hearts, and let us serve with love. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we see the demands of this text, we are humbled because we recognize that we fall short of them often. I pray that you would please cause the truth of this text to drive deep into our souls this week. Would you convict us of our pride? Would you show us graciously the path of humility as we seek to love and serve those in our own house and those in the church? And Father, may Foothill Bible Church be a church that is unified, of one mind, of the same love, as we pursue unity and seek to spread the name of Christ far and wide. And we will give you the glory because it it is all of your doing. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, thank you for your attention. You guys are dismissed.